What good news. Mm. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Whew, I could go home, <laughs> but we won't. <laughs> good morning. Um, my name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion Presbyterian Church. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, grateful for your presence and for your time. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. Um, the text is actually printed on that insert that's in your bulletin. I was working on this service throughout the week, and I had designed a worship service, and it seemed that the Lord was going in a different direction. So Thursday afternoon, I thought, oh my goodness, I need to make some changes. So that's why that change has been made. Um, it's also on page uh, 818 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible. Um, this morning is, of course, the first Sunday of the new year, and as such, it is the first Sunday of a new sermon series. What are we doing? Well, for the next handful of weeks, we're going to be looking at Jesus's kingdom parables, and you might wonder why, like, why the parables? And I got two reasons. Number one is this. What do you think Jesus spent most of his time talking about when he walked the earth? Well, do you remember how he began his ministry? The first words from his mouth in Matthew 4.18. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How does Jesus spend his time during his three or so years of ministry? Again, quoting from Matthew chapter 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What's Jesus' own understanding of the purpose of his ministry? Well, this comes from Luke's gospel. Jesus has spent a day healing all those who were sick with various diseases who were brought to him. You might remember, after a day of healing and exorcism, Jesus escapes to a desolate place. And when the crowds find him, they try to, 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 to bring him back into the city. They want more of what he's got. And Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And of course, how does Jesus spend the 40 days after his resurrection, before he ascends into heaven. Well, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he says that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Folks, if Jesus is about anything, he's about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it in his gospel, the kingdom of heaven. And if Jesus is about the kingdom of heaven, shouldn't those of us who are believers also be about the kingdom of heaven? So that's reason number one. If this was important to Jesus, it needs to be important to us. But there's a second reason for why we're looking at these parables, and that is that they're parables. What is a parable? 
Someone might define a parable as a fictitious story that Jesus tells using things from everyday life, things from the ordinary of life, seeds, soil, birds, rocks, weeds, thorns, to help us understand something more fully that we, 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 we sort of already do understand, but we needed to have, have it clarified in our minds. But here's the thing, when Jesus teaches a parable, he's He's not trying to teach us something that we don't quite understand. He's he's not trying to clarify something that we already know and believe. He's not trying to keep us engaged by using these illustrations from the everyday and ordinary of our lives. Jesus often uses parables as a means of indirect communication to critique and dismantle his listeners' views of the world in order to show them the true nature of God's kingdom. Jesus uses parables to critique and dismantle our views of the world so that he might show us the true nature of God's kingdom One pastor put it like this. He said, for Jesus, the parables were used not to explain things to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question all of their previous explanations and understandings. Far from being illustrations that shine an understanding they already have on something they haven't yet figured out, the parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in the mind. Let me give you an example. Story. David and Nathan, you might remember that King David commits adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife, and she gets pregnant. So what does David do? He wants to cover his tracks. Uriah the Hittite with the other Israelite soldiers are at war. So David brings Uriah back and he says, hey, look, why don't you go spend the night with your wife? But Uriah won't have anything of it because the, 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 the armies of the Lord are at battle. So he refuses to go. It goes on for a couple of days. And finally, David sends Uriah the Hittite back to the front lines, carrying a note, a note ordering the commander to put Uriah on the front lines, withdraw the troops so he can be murdered. Time passes. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and and he tells David this parable. He tells him this, this story about this rich man who had flocks beyond measure. A visitor came to town and this rich man wanted to prepare him a meal. But instead of taking one of his own sheep, He takes the one sheep, the one land that belongs to his neighbor, this poor fella, and he slaughters it and he serves this man, this traveler, dinner. How does David react? Do you remember? He is enraged. This man should be punished. And then Nathan says to David, You are that man. And David is cut to the heart. And he says to Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. Friends, that is how a parable is intended to work. It is a subversive critique. Its ultimate aim is to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Of course, that raises, well, it presupposes something, doesn't it? It presupposes that we need a crisis. It presupposes that we need our vision corrected. It presupposes that we need our views of the kingdom of God dismantled so that we might better understand the true nature of God's kingdom. So with that in mind, read with me Matthew 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, And did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. Friends there's my opinion. There's your opinion. And then there's the very word of God. And what we've just read is the very word of God. Would you pray with me. And ask him to teach us this morning. Father, son and spirit. There's nothing. We need more. This morning than to hear you speak. 
for you to take these words on this page and bring them to life in our hearts and our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would do just that, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might taste and see that you're good, and that what we might leave this building looking more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, question for the day. How, in this parable, which really is a parable about parables, how is Jesus seeking to dismantle our views of the kingdom of God and correct our distorted vision? Well, let me give you a little context. As I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Think the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's all about life in the kingdom. And Jesus has been demonstrating the power of the kingdom as he goes about healing the afflicted, casting out demons. Think about what you read in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus actually sends out his disciples to do what he's been doing, to teach and to heal and to do exorcism. Understandably, by the time we come to our passage, Jesus is having a Taylor Swift moment. The crowds are flocking to him. But if you read Matthew 11 and 12, what you discover is that not everybody is excited about Jesus the same way. In the words of Tim Mackey, some people hate Jesus. Already they hate Jesus. They, they reject him. They think he's a fraud. They think he's a charlatan. Other people, they just don't know. They don't know what to think. And then, of course, there are some who are drawn to Jesus. They are fans. So why is Jesus drawing this diverse crowd? How is Jesus drawing this diverse crowd, both of supporters and detractors? Well, it's because he's talking about the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom is every Jewish person's dream. This is what they want. This is what they have been expecting. Those who knew their own story, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who know the stories of Moses and David, those who know the story of the downfall and the dividing of the kingdom into the northern kingdom, Israel, to the southern kingdom, Judah, those who know their story, the story of the exile, when the Assyrians came in and carried off the northern kingdom into exile, and the Babylonians came in and carried off the southern kingdom into exile, those who knew the prophecy and the promise of the prophets about the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer, the conquering king who would make all things right, who would defeat death, who would, beginning with the Romans, would crush their enemies. 
who would make Jerusalem the center and the capital of the world and who would bring shalom, final peace and rest to the land. The Jews of Jesus' day longed for and they expected the coming of the kingdom, which again is why these crowds are flocking to Jesus because many of these people are beginning to think that Jesus might be the guy. Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus might be the conquering king. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them. I love how David Gibson, a pastor in Scotland, tells or retells Jesus' parable. He says this. He says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a sower went out to sow, and it didn't go very well. He sowed a lot of seed. Most of it was wasted, but some of it yielded good fruit. Thanks very much for coming. I hope you find that helpful. It deserves your full concentration. The end. You can imagine the crowds scratching their head and thinking, what's this guy talking about? What's he, what's he trying to say? What is Jesus saying? Folks, Jesus is describing what he has come to do. He is describing how he has come to do what he's doing. And he's describing the very kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom that you expect, which is really my kingdom, it doesn't come with shock and awe. It doesn't come with a host of an angelic army. It doesn't come with hellfire and brimstone. Frankly, it looks rather unimpressive, doesn't it? There seems to be a lot of waste. Maybe three quarters of the seed has gone to waste. And as such, it seems like a lot of wasted energy and effort. Growth in the kingdom. It's like watching the grass grow. It's virtually imperceptible. And it comes in fits and starts with lots of discouragement and lots of disappointment. But here's what you have to see from tiny acorns in my kingdom. Mighty oaks can and will grow. What is Jesus doing in telling this parable? He is not just trying to contradict the expectations of the crowds. He is seeking to recalibrate to, to realign their expectations of his kingdom work in their hearts and lives and in the world in which they live. And he's doing the same thing here this morning. Like the Jews in Jesus' day, we all walk into this room with expectations. We all walk in thinking we know how God should work in our lives and work in our world. Well, is God living up to your expectations? Is God working in your life and in the world the way that you expect? 
Most of us would have to say, if I'm honest, no. And the question you have to ask is, what do you do with that? Why doesn't God do what we expect? In this parable, Jesus answers that question. Now, Jesus' words can sound defeatist. They can sound even pessimistic. But the fact of the matter is they illustrate Jesus' tremendous patience, his his tremendous grace, and his tremendous love for us. What do you think would have happened if Jesus had been the conquering king that the crowds had expected? He'd come with a sword in judgment. What do you think would have happened? They would have been judged too. They would have been wiped away in the white, hot, justified wrath of God. But as Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, I did not come to judge the world, I came to save the world. Beloved, what Jesus is telling his listeners, was telling his listeners that day by the sea, and what he's telling us this morning is, I don't work according to your expectations. My kingdom does not come like you'd want or expect. But hear this. It is coming. It will come producing grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. I was thinking about this passage this week, and the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 came to mind. It's actually God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, typically when we hear those words, we think that what Isaiah is talking about is the providence of God. God works in mysterious ways, and that's absolutely true. But as Dane Ortland so brilliantly explains, God's word through the prophet Isaiah is not primarily meant to explain God's providence in our lives, but to surprise us with his compassionate love. Listen to the words that come just before the passage I read. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The thoughts that that God has that are above our thoughts are his love. What he's saying in this passage is, I may not live up to your expectations. I may not do what you like or what you want or what you expect, but what I am doing and even what I am not doing flows from a heart of compassion for you, a heart of love for you. If you're like me, you think, I believe Help my unbelief. 
I believe, but I want to believe. I, I hear, but I kind of don't hear. And Jesus invites us this morning to look at him. Look at the cross. Look at this table. This is where we see the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of God for us. And the question before us today is, even though, even though God doesn't operate the way we would understand it, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Of course, all that sounds good and fine until you read verses 10 through 17, because at first glance, what Jesus says in verses 10 through 17 sounds absolutely horrible, doesn't it? I mean, in verse 10, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask him why he speaks in parables. And he responds in verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In verse 12, he says, I speak to them in parables. In verse 15, he answers the question why. Jesus answers by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. What do you do with that? It almost sounds like Jesus doesn't want the crowds to understand what he's saying. It almost sounds like Jesus is deliberately telling parables to keep people from hearing the good news, from understanding it and from following, and from finding mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. And that's, that's a horrible thought. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing at all. Sitting in a boat and speaking to a crowd, Jesus is assuming the role of a prophet. This is how the prophets taught. Parables were the language of the Old Testament prophets. And, and Jesus isn't assuming the role of just any old generic prophet. He's, he's assuming the role of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah in verse 12. Specifically, he quotes Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah. If you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, what you discover is that God's people in Isaiah's day have walked away from God. They've turned their backs on God. Sure, they, they go to temple. Sure, they make sacrifices. Sure, they sing the songs, psalms and pray prayers. But they're just going through the motions. They're just playing church. Over and over, through the prophets, through Moses and, and Aaron and Samuel and Nathan and Isaiah, God has continually called his people out. He has continually called them back. He has called them to repent. But over and over, his people refuse to listen. They're like little children with their fingers intentionally stuck in their ears so that they can't hear. They are willfully deaf. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah in Matthew 13, it's not a statement of unwillingness on God's part. It's a statement of unwillingness on the people's part. They simply 
won't listen. And what Jesus is saying here is, if this is what you want, so be it. You don't want to hear, you don't want to understand, your will be done. It's pretty sobering. And it's a warning to us. In the words of, of Tim Keller, the day is coming when either we will say to God, your will be done, or he will say to us, your will be done. And the question you have to ask is, whose will will it be? It's a warning. With this warning ringing in our ears, we have to remember why Jesus tells parables. Parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in your mind. Parables are intended to elicit a reaction from the crowd, like David's reaction to Nathan. Beloved, Jesus tells this parable to them and to us as a warning. He tells this parable to critique and dismantle our views of the kingdom of heaven in order to show us the true nature of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells this parable as an invitation to draw us to himself, to get us to think, to think about something we otherwise wouldn't be willing to think about. And that's exactly what you see in this passage, isn't it? Verse 12 then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? The question for you and for me is this. Do Jesus' parables pop your mental circuit breakers? How is Jesus critiquing and dismantling your view of the kingdom of heaven? How is the true nature of the kingdom different from your understanding of the kingdom? Are you willing to be corrected? Do you see Jesus' parables as a gracious and loving invitation to come to him with a teachable spirit? Next Sunday, we're going to come back to this parable, and we're going to look particularly at the soils in the last half of the parable. But before we come to the table this morning, I would be remiss if I didn't call your attention to one more thing. What is the one thing Jesus requires of us? Verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, life with me requires listening to me. Receiving what I say being corrected by my words and being comforted as well. It's, it's, it's using the word as your north star, as your guiding point, as a fixed point. I love how David Gibson illustrates hearing Jesus. He says, what did Moses say in Deuteronomy 6? It means Talking about the word when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It means binding it as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. It means writing it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
What did King David say in Psalm 119? It means drinking that word like wine, savoring it like sweet honey and treasuring it like pure gold. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? It means making that word to be like granite under your feet upon which you build your whole life. And you think, that sounds great. I, I want to hear Jesus. I want to listen to Jesus. I, I want his word to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But so often, I just don't understand. I, I just don't get what he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing. If I'm honest, I, I wonder about my hearing. Well, let me encourage you this morning with this. A couple weeks ago, Keaton preached from Luke 7. It's a story of John the Baptist sending two of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist, like other Jews in his day, had certain expectations of what the kingdom of God would look like when it came. And what John the Baptist expected was what everybody else expected. Judgment, conquering our enemies, all of those things. And yet, he hears about what Jesus is doing, and Jesus is wandering around in the wilderness, teaching people about the kingdom of God, and telling parables like the parable of the sower. More than that, John is sitting in prison, remember? And he's awaiting execution. He doesn't know it, but he's staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. And as far as John thinks, this is not how the kingdom is supposed to come. So he sends these disciples to Jesus and he says, hey, are, are you the guy? Or did I, did I get it wrong? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And like he does in our passage, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. And do you know what comes next? Come on. The deaf hear. The deaf hear. The deaf hear. Beloved, Jesus has come to give hearing to the deaf. If you find yourself this morning wondering, am I really hearing the Lord? Come to him like the disciples. As he reminds us in John 6, whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Lord, if I said anything today that's not in accordance with your truth, I pray that you would help us to forget it before we walk out these doors. But Lord, if I've said anything 
that reflects what you want to communicate in this passage. I pray that you would burn it into our hearts, that it would be something that we would think about throughout this week, that we would find ourselves in prayer, confession, in rejoicing because of what we see in this passage, that while you, you don't do what we expect you to do, you do exactly what we need. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you took on flesh, came, taught, lived, died, rose again, and are now ascended, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation. Lord, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. In Christ's name, amen.